and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Thanksgiving with the history of this uniquely American holiday and explore whether the generosity of the Native Americans towards the first white settlers was later repaid with genocide. Joining us is Stefanoni, who is a professor of American Studies at Williams College, where he teaches courses on Native American and Indigenous Studies. He's the author of the new book, Indian Wars Everywhere, Colonial Violence and the Shadow Doctrines of Empire. Then, as many selfless volunteers feed the poor and homeless on this day, we'll look into what it will take to feed all Americans every day and speak with the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, co-chair with Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the co-director of the Keros Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. Having spent the past two decades organizing among the poor in the United States, she is the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and We Cry for Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign, co-authored with the Reverend William Barber. We will discuss her article of Tom Dispatch, A Cycle of Escalating Violence. Then finally, we'll explore future trends to find out what we might be thankful for and speak with Stephen Schwartz, a scientist, futurist, and award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a distinguished associate scholar at the California Institute for Human Science and a columnist for the journal Explore. He's the editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and the weekly Schwartz Report podcast in which he covers trends that are affecting the future. For over 40 years as an experimentalist, he has been studying the nature of consciousness and is one of the small group that created modern remote viewing. He's the author of more than 250 technical reports and papers and is the recipient of the Parapsychological Association's Outstanding Contribution Award, the United States Navy's Certificate of Commendation for Outstanding Performance, and OOM Magazine's 100 Most Inspiring People in the World Award. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now on this Thanksgiving is Stefan Oni, who is a professor of American Studies at Williams College, where he teaches courses on Native American and Indigenous Studies. He is the author of the new book, Indian Wars Everywhere, Colonial Violence and the Shadow Doctrines of Empire. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stefan Oni. Thanks, Ian, for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously there is a connection with Thanksgiving and the Native Americans who whose generosity in feeding the pilgrims on Thanksgiving, which created the traditions, I guess, of turkey and yams, etc., to some extent was not replayed, right, with the genocide of the native people. So I know there's some historical controversy over, over these 
charges, but is that a accurate description of what happened, that the Native Americans showed generosity towards the white settlers and in return the white settlers colonised the country and many people consider they conducted genocide in doing so? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Of course, the kind of elementary school pageant version of Thanksgiving doesn't have a lot of historical reality behind it. Um, my kind of go-to for a short and sweet rebuttal to the common Thanksgiving story is an article in The New Yorker by a historian at Harvard named Phil Deloria called The Invention of Thanksgiving. But yeah, I mean, I guess maybe not so much generosity as alliance making, right? Native peoples in early America made alliances with the Europeans, fought wars with the Europeans. They were kind of dynamic political entities trying to carve out a space of sovereignty amidst the pressures of colonialism. And over time, the increasing pressure of European settlement moves those relationships more and more into the province of war. Uh, and genocide is a word a lot of historians use to characterize much of what goes on. And of course, uh, Australia, where I come from, a similar genocide against the Aboriginal people, particularly of the on the island of Tasmania, where they were entirely wiped out, and many were, of course, wiped out in the main continent as well. There was a recent referendum, by the way, in Australia for reparations for the native people, for the Aboriginals, and it was voted down. So has there ever been any sense? I mean, when they talk about reparations in this country, it's usually towards African-American people who were victims of slavery. But in terms of the Native Americans, has there been any serious consideration of reparations? I don't think anything serious. There's been some sort of mild apologies that were made, but there is a movement or, or pressure from Native communities themselves for land back. In other words, the, rep the form of reparations I hear people asking for is to give land back, return land to Native nations, you know, most of which was taken, stolen, acquired through treaties that weren't upheld. And so land, I think, is a good place to start, in my personal opinion. And that's something other people are saying. Um, and I think the reference to Australia is appropriate because at least the field I work in, Native Indigenous Studies, is very much a global field. It's not just focused on North America. Um, a lot of the thinkers analyzing places like New Zealand, Australia, uh, and Canada are appropriate to the United States. And um, one of the things I learned doing my book, you know, I'm not a scholar of the law, but I had to kind of dip my toe into legal history because as Euro Europeans are coming up with the section of the law we now call the laws of war, it's running parallel to the colonization of places all over the world. And so the laws of war have this kind of exception for wars with savage peoples, quote unquote, baked into the law. People like Hugo Grotius, you know, are saying things like, you know, in wars with the savages, there's no kind of restraint placed upon us. And so that savage exception uh, is baked into the laws of war for Euro-Americans. Well, it's also what's happening in Gaza, isn't it? Isn't that the sense that the Israelis have that Hamas's uh, brutal behavior is beyond the pale and you have to exterminate them and that over two million civilians are many of whom are collateral damage, is this, is an afterthought. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing the language of savagery, barbarism, terrorism. I mean, these are fluid signifiers that can be deployed in a variety of ways, and they continue to be used in such a way as to render kind of Western-style indiscriminate warfare as sanitized. 
Um, you know, savagery is often applied to guerrilla fighters, people that are attacked from the margins, from the shadows. Personally, I think bombers are just as quote unquote savage, right? But they usually aren't defined in that kind of way. So I think words like savage, barbarism can be weaponized in that way. Well, your book, of course, Indian Wars Everywhere, Colonial Violence and the Shadow Doctrines of Empire, uh, deals a lot with Geronimo. And Geronimo, of course, was the last native leader to surrender. And interestingly, or ironically, the U.S. military today has appropriated the word Geronimo, or even the historical lessons. Geronimo is used by paratroopers. They yell Geronimo as they jump out of airplanes. And when uh, the SEAL Team 6 hunted down and killed Osama bin Laden, they call back to President Barack Obama and those in the waiting in the Situation Room. They call back uh, saying, we have a visual on Geronimo. And then a few minutes later, Geronimo E-K-I-A, which means enemy killed in action. Yeah, yeah, that's actually the kind of anecdote that opens my book. Um, it's the perfect way to kind of get into the story I want to tell because... The genesis for this book is noticing exactly those things you're mentioning, right? References to Geronimo, the fact that U.S. military helicopters have names that reference tribes. Black and Hawk, to go, right. Black Hawk, right, Chinook, whatever. And trying to go more deeper into that history. And the kind of interesting story I ended up telling is that there's a lot more depth to those connections than just kind of a surface level, right, names for helicopters, little weird cultural references. That, in fact, the wars that were fought with Native peoples – kind of continually resonate throughout U.S. military history. And they're often resurrected as a way for the military to make sense of conflicts that maybe confound existing doctrine or challenge existing principles or strategies. Um, during the War on Terror, when the occupations in Afghanistan and Iraq start to not go so well, and the U.S. military really reorganizes itself around counterinsurgency, suddenly you get all these articles, monographs, pieces of strategic writing written by the military that you seek to resurrect the Indian wars as a template for the wars of the war on terror, right? So just as we fought Geronimo, so we can fight Osama bin Laden. And so my book explores some of the implications of using the conquest of native peoples as a blueprint for modern warfare, right? Because those wars were frequently genocidal, often very vicious and racialized in certain kind of ways that we might not want to reproduce. But on the civilian front, as opposed to the military front, do you think something opposite is happening in the sense that there's a reckoning going on in the popular culture? For example, the latest Martin Scorsese film about how Native Americans in Oklahoma uh, were murdered uh, to steal their rights to the oil under their land. Uh, and this Taylor Sheridan, who's, a, who's got a bunch of series, Yellowstone uh, 1923, which deals w with the brutal treatment of Indian children forced into these hideous uh, Catholic boarding schools where their culture is just beaten out of them. And then the new one, Bass Reeves' Lawman, which is about an escaped slave ending up in Indian territory. All of those combined basically portray a kind of 19th century of absolute violence, hideous violence, that this country is formed with violence and uh, there were victims. 
and it's just inescapable. I don't know whether you can make the, the, the argument that v- violence is in our DNA, but it's certainly starting to look that way. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that kind of strand of pop culture has been around at least since maybe the 1970s, right, with D. Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which sells so many copies. Uh, films like Little Big Man, that turn a little bit more critical eye on the process of U.S. expansion. And yeah, I haven't I haven't seen a couple of those new shows. There's so many shows you need to watch these days. It's hard to keep up. I think if depictions of Native peoples have gotten better, it's largely because Native peoples have more space to kind of do that sort of cultural production now. Um, the show I'm really into recently is the show called Reservation Dogs, which airs on Hulu. It's the first TV series to feature all indigenous writers and directors. And I think the really important thing that show does, and it does a lot of things, is it tells contemporary Native stories and then also projects Native stories into the future. I think one of the problems kind of pop culture can get into is that it pretends as if Native American history ends somewhere around 1890 and doesn't really project it into the present or project it into the future. And I think Reservation Dogs does a really good job of pushing back against those kind of depictions. And there was, of course, the Kevin Costner film, Dances with Wolves, that I think did a lot to, to humanize and, and, and to show what happened to Native Americans from their perspective through the eyes of a, of a white man. Yeah, I think it tried to. And I, you know, I've read some about the new Scorsese film, and it sounds like he at least made an honest effort to involve the Osage Nation in the production of that film, right? Because it is telling a story, a deeply traumatic story about the violence they experience. And so perhaps we can hope there's at least a sense in Hollywood that you need to work with Native peoples rather than just tell their stories for them. And hopefully that continues to get better. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, Stefan, back to Thanksgiving. Is there... Is this an opportunity as families and friends get together around the table to air these issues that we've been discussing? I think having these conversations is important, particularly people that are, uh, you know, settlers, descended from settlers, um, to having a kind of more complicated picture of what this history looks like. And, you know, perhaps even more than kind of chewing on the past, getting informed enough that you can react in the present, right? So the next time, a native nation in your proximity is trying to get something done, whether they're opposed to an oil pipeline or they maybe they have a case in the court system. Understanding that native peoples are sovereign nations, they exist in relationship to the United States, and that to try to have a more equitable and just future would mean trying to decolonize some of that relationship that has gone on between the United States and the different native nations that inhabit North America. And Given the history of the treaties that were broken and the land that was taken, what is the current status of the Bureau of Indian Affairs? There's been nothing but scandal over the years, as far as I can tell. That's a great question. I do know that the Supreme Court seems to seesaw back and forth. Surprisingly, I think that Neil Gorsuch on the current court is considered pretty sympathetic to Native nations and treaty rights. So maybe that's a positive. Um, Of course, the American Congress exercises something called plenary power, which is a somewhat complicated concept that basically means we can do whatever we want. And so U.S. colonial power is often and frequently reasserted. But I hope, I can hope, perhaps be a little bit optimistic that in the aftermath of things like the Standing Rock protests in 2016, people are more aware that tribal sovereignty, native treaty rights, and native issues in general are something they should be paying attention to. 
Well, Stefanoni, I thank you very much for joining us on this Thanksgiving. Thanks for having me, Ian. Appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Stefanoni, who's a professor of American studies at Williams College, where he teaches courses on Native American and indigenous studies. And he's the author of the new book, Just Out, Indian Wars Everywhere, Colonial Violence and the Shadow Doctrines of Empire. We're going to take a brief station break. And as many selfless volunteers feed the poor and homeless on this day, we'll look into what it will take to feed all Americans every day. Remember me, remember me, when the sun comes up in the morning sky, there I will be, there I will be, soaring with the eagle so high, feeling free, remember me, down the road, hand in hand, you and me, Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now on this Thanksgiving is the Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris, the co-chair with the Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the co-director of the Keras Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. Having spent the last two decades organizing among the poor in the United States, she's the author of Always With Us, what Jesus really said about the poor, and We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign, co-authored with the Reverend William Barber. And she has an article at Tom Dispatch, A Cycle of Escalating Violence. Welcome to Background Briefing, Reverend Dr. Liz Thea Harris. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, obviously I want to talk to you about your article at Tom Dispatch, A Cycle of Escalating Violence, which is about what's happening in Gaza and the work that you've been doing and demonstrating for a ceasefire. But since we're broadcasting now on Thanksgiving, and you have been obviously working for the poor in this country, just as Jesus ministered to the poor, not to the rich. It's easy for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do you feel about the the idea that the child tax credit was taken away by Joe Manchin? A lot of kids in this country are hungry. They go hungry to bed every night. So it's a wonderful thing that people step up and volunteer to feed the homeless and the hungry on Thanksgiving. But can't we come up with a regime where we feed the homeless and hungry every day? Well, in fact, and it, it would be far less costly um, if we, living in the richest country in human history, were to actually put forward policies, policies like the child tax credit, policies like universal single-payer health care, policies like living wages and, and job protections, um, you know, moratoriums on eviction. I mean, all these things that we have, you know, in our wheelhouse to do, um, it would be far less costly to actually end poverty than it is to have the level of poverty, of homelessness, of hunger, of, of economic insecurity that we have in our country and in our world today. Um, and, you know, when we gather on Thanksgiving, like we are gathering today to, to live in a, in a nation um, where we are giving thanks uh, for prosperity and we have 
40% of our U.S. population living in poverty or or one, uh, you know, emergency away, small emergency away, whether it's a, an extreme storm or, a, or uh, you know, a car repair, or, you know, this kind of thing, uh, away from absolute economic ruin. I mean, uh, what, what do we have to give thanks for? I mean, uh, uh, we should thank folks that are working, you know, tirelessly and being paid um, jobs that they can't afford um, the essentials of life. We should give thanks for those that are, are working to educate our kids uh, despite an attack on public education. We should give thanks for uh, those that are out there working for peace um, when, in fact, we are funding uh, a war economy in this country. I mean, the, we have the priorities all wrong. Um, and on a day like today, we should be reflecting on how do we get it right? Uh, because it's possible and uh, we just need the political will to to actually uh, lift the load of poverty and to promote peace and justice throughout the world. Well, speaking of the political will, it would seem, though, that the Biden administration is not dealing with the reasons why a lot of Americans don't feel good about the economy, even though you get economists telling us all the time how it's remarkably well the economy is doing, how inflation is going down, how the GDP is going up, and all those indicators which uh, we talk about with economists. But where the rubber meets the road in Main Street America, it does seem in many ways a different picture. And, that, and I know the White House is struggling with the idea that how come the public don't appreciate the stewardship that Biden has shown over recovering the economy since COVID. And I suspect it has a lot to do with what we're talking about, of how many people literally are poor in this country and are $400 emergency away from penury. I mean, uh, indeed. I mean, the it, it is possible for us to, to address these issues. Um, we saw a bunch of the pandemic-era programs um, really, you know, make a significant a difference in people's lives, um, whether it was, uh, you know, the pandemic unemployment insurance, whether it was pandemic Medicaid expansion, whether it was, you know, a minute of canceled student debt, whether it was, um, again, eviction and utility shutoff moratoriums, and then for sure that child tax credit, that expanded child tax credit and other kind of earned income tax credits. Um, so we, we've seen this administration um, put forward policies that really do improve people's lives. But the thing about those policies is that they have to be expanded and extended. And, and they weren't just for the emergency of a couple of years of, of uh, the first years of COVID. Um, they were pre-existing emergencies, pre-existing conditions before COVID that have only been deepened and worsened. Um, and so... If, even with inflation coming down and prices, you know, um, sometimes leveling off, in, in many cases, we have instances where folks are, are just paying more and more and more money for things that they just simply cannot afford. Um, and so, you know, what that means is that we have to lean into the fact that some of it was done, it just needs to be done again. And other things that haven't been done, you know, need to be um need to be done um, because, again, 40 percent, one third of the U.S. electorate uh, is poor and low income. I mean, that's a bigger voting block than almost any other one. 
and 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 folk are are clear that you know when people come talk about living wages and and voting rights when people put forward policies that that can actually you know put food on the table and um expand healthcare, uh, we're seeing folks out in communities across the country voting for politicians that are uh, able to help meet their needs and meet the community's needs, not just individuals. And and so, you know, I think this is this is a moment when, you know, the the people are speaking um, and and insisting that those who have been elected to lead in political leadership should use every tool that they have to actually improve the lives of people um, and, and not just uh, continue with kind of untold corporate profit and, and, and the like. Well, there's no question that corporate America took advantage of the pandemic to jack up their prices and that and that's led to inflation. It's just all the basics cost so much more, milk and eggs and stuff like that. It's it, The public surely knows that. But do they That's blame right. corporate America, though? That's the point. <laughs> or do they blame Biden? Right. I mean, I I, I think that people I, I hear traveling around the country, talking to lots of, of working families, lots of poor and low income people who are pretty clear that corporations, you know, are, are gouging workers, are gouging prices, um, are are making life harder for the vast majority of us. Uh, but when it comes to the question of policies, whether it's to, to regulate these corporations or to increase people's wages, um, you know, the, the, the government has a, a significant role to play. And, and, and so then the, the more that we have politicians who are listening to the demands of people, you know, seeing right now, I mean, there is unionization and organizing amongst low-wage workers happening all across the country. I mean, it's, it's powerful. People are, are asserting that, that, you know, we have the right to thrive and not just barely survive. And, and it's, it's encouraging when the UAW is in negotiations and President Biden visits the picket line and, and we, we need more of it. Um, we, need, we need more of it. But, uh, Reverend Dr. Liz, you mentioned uh, that 40, 40% of Americans are in poverty or, or w- within a $400 emergency of penury, and that's the largest voting block in America. How do you prevent those people from voting for Trump, which happens when, when you're angry about the economy, uh, you throw out the incumbent and vote for the candidate that's promising to fix things. I mean, it just happened over the weekend in Argentina because the economy there is, is just terrible. And this crazy guy with a chainsaw who's just absolutely dangerous beyond belief, they vote for him instead of the guy that, uh, you know, was basically trying to fix the economy, albeit somewhat responsible for it too at the same time. I think it's really important when we talk about the kind of voter base for the MAGA movement and for Trump, uh, that we we are pretty clear that it isn't actually poor and low-income people. You know, the folks that put Trump in office the first time, the folks that were, you know, uh, rioting at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, these are not poor and low-income people. Folk might be talking about, you know, being fearful of losing what they have, um, but 
when we look at the kind of stats of who is participating in elections, including who um, says that they they voted for 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 Trump or for MAGA candidates, um, the it's it's folks that have benefited from the Trump tax cuts of 2017. It's 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 folks that have um, incomes of tens of thousands of dollars more on average than the folks that are voting for um, other candidates. And so, and yet it is really true that many poor and low income people are simply not engaging in electoral politics and not voting because folk are not hearing kind of their name and condition and, and not hearing folks that are promising to actually fix things. And so I, but I, but I think before we, we go towards saying that poor and low income people are, are voting for MAGA candidates, it's, it's just, it's actually not what the numbers are telling us. Um, and yet I, I do agree when we look at Argentina, when we look at other parts of the world, and when we look at, um, you know, uh, politics in this country, the, the fact that the economy is not doing well, the fact that, that we're engaged in conflict across the world, the fact that, you know, people in record numbers are losing health care um, that was expanded during um, the first years of the COVID pandemic. I mean, none of those things are inspiring for people to turn out to, to vote. And yet it's very important that, that people, um, you know, uh, vote and vote for, for candidates that are actually trying to lift the load of poverty. So given the power of the military lobby in this country, I mean, the sad thing about the Congress is that the only thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on is more money for the military. And the country is so overdue for a serious guns versus butter debate. And I, I, for the life of me, I don't know why it is that we, we can't break this cycle of just throwing more money at the Pentagon, which it's over a trillion now. I mean, because if one of the things that the, the, the sleight of hand that they play on Capitol Hill is the Pentagon budget, big parts of it are sloughed off under other departments like the Department of Energy does nuclear weapons, the Coast Guard's in the Department of Transportation, lots of pensions are sloughed off into other government departments. The real uh, military budget is over a trillion and it's growing by the minute. So I know this is something that you've been working on, but how do you think you can break the Gordian knot there? It's such a such a straightforward argument is that we could have all the things that advanced countries like the Scandinavian countries have health care and pregnancy leave and child care if we just stopped investing in death and started to invest in life no that's that's exactly right. I mean the fact that the nation spends more than half of its discretionary budget on the military and the fact that the Pentagon basically every year gets more money than it even asks for, you know, and and that we have this military industrial complex, I mean, is, you know, is is part of what makes that statement from Dr. King a year before he was killed. You know, the U.S., one of the greatest purveyors of violence in the world. Right. I mean, and 
and you know that same kind of death dealing of funding war means pulling money as you were just saying from programs of social uplift and and that means that the nation just every year um, with every dollar that goes towards the military quicker more quickly approaching kind of the spiritual death that that king was talking about i i think what has to happen and what we're trying to do at the Cairo Center and a bunch of the movement building work that we're doing is make these connections between poverty and militarism, between the war economy and what a peace economy would be, between uh, calling for diplomacy and uh, global cooperation and and coming out against kind of warmongering and, and escalating conflict and violence. And the thing is, is that a lot of people in this country really support a, a peaceful agenda. And I think what we're seeing right now with what's going on in the Middle East and across the world is more and more people um, crying out for peace um, and saying that, you know, that war, all it does is give us more suffering and death and and that we we need peace and we need it from a moral standpoint and we need it also from you know, a political and economic standpoint. Um, and and so I I feel on those, uh, at the same time, discouraged by the escalating conflict that's happening across the world. Um, you know, with the nuclear clock being closer to like annihilation than it ever has been in my lifetime. But I also feel a sense of hope, um, hope that, that a kind of renewed peace movement is happening and that people are making and are seeing the connections between um, injustice and conflict and and the need for peace. And that's what it's taken um, in other moments of U.S. history and world history is when when the people insist that that we need uh, to switch this kind of money for war, but not for the poor um, into a shared prosperity for everyone. Um, and a, a, a peace economy. Well, the Reverend Dr. Lucia Harris, I thank you so much for joining us on this Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with the Reverend Dr. Lucia Harris, the co-chair with Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and the co-director of the Keras Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. Having spent the past two decades organizing among the poor in the United States, she's the author of Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign, co-authored with the Reverend William Barber, and she has an article at Tom Dispatch, A Cycle of Escalating Violence. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring future trends to find out what we might be thankful for on this Thanksgiving Day. I worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes Slept on the ground in the light of your moon On the edge of your city you've seen us And then we come with the dust and we go with the wind Green pastures of plenty from dry desert ground from that grass. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Schwartz, a scientist, futurist, award-winning author of both fiction and non-fiction. He's a distinguished associate scholar of the California Institute for Human Sciences and a columnist for the journal Explore, the editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and the weekly Schwartz Report podcast in which he covers trends that are affecting the future. For over 40 years as an experimentalist, he's been studying the nature of consciousness and is one of the small group that created modern remote viewing and is the author of more than 250 technical reports and papers and is the recipient of the Parapsychological Association's Outstanding Contribution Award, the U.S. Navy Certification of Commendation for Outstanding Performance and Oom Magazine's 100 Most Inspiring People in the World Award. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Schwartz. How you doing, Ian? Not too bad on this Thanksgiving. I'm looking to find out what we can be thankful for. And of course, since you are a futurist, um, the future is looking bleak in terms of global warming. For the first time, the global average temperature on uh, last Friday was more than two degrees Celsius hotter than levels before industrialization. And uh, the threshold was crossed, and although the threshold was crossed just temporarily, and does not mean that the world is in a permanent state of warming above two degrees, it's also a symptom, though, of the planet getting hotter and hotter, and possibly reaching the point of no return. So I know that's not good news, but is there anything you can say to take the pain away? Uh, No. (laughs) I'm sorry to say... I completely concur with what you've just said. Uh, It's very clear that we are simply not doing enough to address what is going on with global warming. Uh, I just read this morning, the world's richest 1% admit as much carbon as the bottom two-thirds. And this is a report that just came out from Oxfam International, but but there are a whole series of these kinds of reports, both describing the wealth inequality issue and also describing the fact we are simply not taking this seriously enough. It is not being looked at as it should. I mean, just to give you a sense, China has a new coal power spree that is continuing, even though they're doing a great deal also on alternatives. It's just we as a species are not taking this seriously enough, and we're going to pay a terrible price for that. Well, that that is not Thanksgiving cheer, but but let's, since I've sort of, (laughs) I'm on this somewhat perhaps futile quest on a day when family and friends celebrate the the I think it's the most pleasant american holiday thanksgiving because it's it's not commercialized and it's to do with to do with family and friends and fellowship so is there anything in your research that can make me feel a little bit more optimistic about the future of my not so much me but my in fact our children and our grandchildren yes Well, one nice thing that I saw was that e-bikes, electric e-bikes, 
are playing a bigger role in countering carbon emissions than electric vehicles. And I thought that was quite, that was a little bit of good news. Nothing great, but a little bit of good news. It is clear also that we are beginning to see a greater sense of equality between men and women in the genders, which I actually think is very good news. I don't, I, I confess to you though, Ian, you and I have been doing this for, I don't know, it must be getting on 20 years on Thanksgiving. This is the bleakest Thanksgiving that, that we have done this because uh, again, the same problem, we corporate interests that control politicians uh, simply are not allowing this issue to be addressed as it properly should. And so the amount of good news that comes out of that is just very small. We're going to be yeah. turning into an electric version of Amsterdam. Well, I, that's a way of putting it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that's encouraging. I mean, I, whenever I've been to Holland, I've always been impressed with how everybody rides a bicycle. Well, there, there are a few countries. Oh, I'll give you another good piece of news. It is increasingly present that countries are committing that by 2040, they're going to try to get internal combustion engines off their road. The Netherlands is an example. Uh, uh, the Nordic countries are an example. New Zealand is an example. Certain states in the United States, that is an example. So there are efforts that are being made to, re to eliminate the internal combustion engine. And I consider that very good news. Right. And then and along with coal-fired plants, you mentioned that China's building them on the one hand, while you know making strides in terms of green energy on the other, apart from the fact that we have Joe Manchin here who sabotaged as much as he could Biden's agenda, even though Biden was able to get quite a bit of green initiatives passed, it's dying, the coal industry. But won't it take a whole different form of living and behaving? And one of the things I thought that came out of the COVID pandemic was that people were starting to work from home and doing less commuting into these tall office buildings uh, yeah. where they where they do work that they could easily do at home. Now, apparently, there's some companies that are discouraging that now, but is there any way that that can be encouraged? Because there's no point in spending hours a day in traffic jams, belching pollution into the air, going to and from work, if you can work at home and spend more time with the kids. I mean, it's a win-win, isn't it? Yes, and I think we're going to see the development of the hologram and, um, uh, and with that will be a greater probability of people working at home and not in office buildings. We're going to see office buildings. You can already see it starting. They're being turned into residences and also into vertical farms because there is a, and I guess that's a little bit of good news. It's becoming quite clear 
that the uh, industrial chemical monoculture form of, our, of agriculture just doesn't work. And so there is a conversion to uh, more uh, organic forms of agriculture. There are, of course, huge water problems. I mean, I know you're trying to, to look for good things, and I wish I, I had more of them to give you. Oh, by the way, on the e-bikes, it just occurred, I just remembered, there are 280 million e-bikes, and they're slashing oil demand for far more than electric vehicles. So I guess that's good news. People working at home, I guess that's good news. Uh, you know, I look for good news every day when I do Schwartz Report, and there just, there just isn't a lot to find. I don't know how to get around that, but that's just the reality of it. There's so many negative things that are taking place. I mean, the country is changing. And I think the largest cause of this is social media. But um, well, let's talk about that. So the country's changing for the worse because of people like Elon Musk, aren't they? Well, Elon Musk is just a piece of it. Uh, uh, I mean, let me just give you a few facts. A, a, the technology of misinformation, which is devoured by citizens, and mis the weaponization of misinformation is the really the central thing that is harming the country. Adults spend an average of two and a half hours a day on social media. Teenagers, the youngs, spend an average of 4.8 hours a day. Girls spend almost 5.8 three hours a day. So only about 5% of, of Gen Zers, uh, or even a slightly older, even bother to read newspapers anymore. They get all of their media information off of social media. And we have, uh, nobody talks about this. Nobody says anything about it. We know that, for instance, for teenagers that are spending as much as five hours, there is a high suicide rate, a high depression rate. They develop very poor, poor feelings about their own physical selves. Um, I got a letter yesterday. Actually, I've gotten three of them in the last week about the, uh, a mother wrote me and said that, a boy that her daughter had rejected took a picture of her face, which he took, and put it using AI onto a porn video and circulated it all through the school. I got three other letters from, from people, women, who said that their sons, who, of course, uh, don't think very clearly about things like sex, um, were sent nude pictures of girls and told that they would meet the girls if they would send a nude picture of themselves back. And then they got a, a note saying, it'll cost you $2,000 to stop me from circulating this all through the media. So I think that the biggest issue that we ought to be talking about on Thanksgiving is how are we going to deal with social media 
which I think is the biggest distorter of the American culture and world culture. So does that come down to pulling the cord, which clearly the kids don't want to do that? No, I, I, I think it isn't clear how to do it because of First Amendment, although let it be said that when the founders created the First Amendment in 1791, they were familiar with misinformation like a, 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 a guy spreading a false rumor in a bar or a printer distributing flyers with misinformation or some charismatic preacher spewing lies to a crowd in a square. They had no idea about something that was going to be about the size of a snuff box that people could carry around in their pocket and spend hours a day listening to and becoming the central way people absorb information. So I think the weaponization of lies is really the central issue, and it's going to require rethinking what do we mean by the First Amendment? Do you have to produce factually accurate data, and how do you determine that? I mean, this is a big national crisis not being discussed properly, um, particularly, as I say, because of its negative effects on young people. But I think that we need to seriously engage this because 49% of Americans, uh, when surveyed by the Center for Countering Digital Hate, agreed with four statements that expressed common conspiracy theories. And you can see what's happening with anti-Semitism now. You can see what's happening with the white supremacy, anti-vaxxing, climate change, all these things that you talk about week after week in your program uh, have become such a strong issue, this weaponization of lies, that it is not clear to me how we're going to deal with this, but this conversation needs to begin. Well, just in closing, though, how do you alter the First Amendment? I mean, it seems like there can't be a, a kind of a national censor that's saying, that, you know, this is the truth. I mean, in the days of Walter Cronkite, uh, and to some extent today with the New York Times, uh, there's a sense that at least there is a, a kind of go-to source for the basic facts. But all that's being disputed because there are alternatives. As Kellyanne Conway said in the Trump era, there are alternative facts. And uh, obviously people like Elon Musk want to uh, spread alternative facts. And so, of course, the people like Vladimir Putin, they just want people to be so consumed with conflicting information that they give up on politics and accept the rule of criminals and oligarchs. Yes, I agree with you. Well, there are several things. One is uh, with um, Citizens United, we legalized bribery. So the American government has become unspeakably corrupt because it is basically legal to bribe politicians. So you get people who we don't need, we both know who their names are, and you pay them a lot of money through PACs and the like, and they in turn vote 
the way you want them to vote. So we need to address wealth inequality. I think that's a very good place to start. That requires changing the tax laws, actually going back to what they used to be. Uh, that would be one good place to start. Uh, beginning to teach civics in schools again would be a very good idea. So better education that is not politically formed, but is fact-based, that's one good thing we could do. Beginning to change the tax laws so that we deal with the wealth inequality that has become so great that four people can have as much money as the other 48, 50% of the country, that would be a good thing to do. Those would be good things to begin to talk about on Thanksgiving and to give thanks that we still have the power to be able to change these things. Because if we don't change them by the 24 election, we may not have the opportunity to change them. Well, Stephen Schwartz, I thank you very much for joining us on this Thanksgiving. My pleasure. I hope you have a good Thanksgiving and I hope all your listeners have a good Thanksgiving and that they think about, and I will leave you with this final thought. If you want to be an agent of social change, there, it has nothing to do with money in, in terms of you or having an army. The way to do this, and it has proven to work, is every day you make lots of little decisions the toothpaste you buy, the toilet paper you buy, the dog foods you buy, whatever. Do a little research. Find out if the companies that are making the product that you are about to buy actually foster well-being. And always choose of the options available, the, the option that, as you best understand it, that promotes well-being passionate, life-affirming development of new parts of our society. If you will do that, if you will choose only to foster well-being in the choices of the things that you buy, tell 10 people you're doing it as a discipline and invite them to join you, then the people that are listening to this program can change the course of the election outcome in 2024. It's our choice. The question is, do we choose to make it? Well, Stephen Schwartz, again, is, is a scientist, futurist, award-winning author in both fiction and nonfiction. He's a distinguished associate scholar of the California Institute for Human Sciences and a columnist for the journal Explore, the editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and the weekly Schwartz Report podcast in which he covers trends that are affecting the future. And for over 40 years as an experimentalist, he's been studying the nature of consciousness as one of a small group that created modern remote viewing and is the author of more than 250 technical reports and papers and is a recipient of the Parapsychological Association's Outstanding Contri Contribution Award, the U.S. Navy's Certification of Commendation for Outstanding Performance and OOM Magazine's 100 Most Inspiring People in the World Award. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,